0: Nothing about you that is controversial, man. God, it's gonna get ugly, man. They're gonna buy
1: you drinks, you're gonna meet girls, they're gonna to try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs, and I know it sounds great. But these people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb.
0: You're smart enough to know that. Glop Culture is brought to you by Harry's Shave. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. Make the smart switch to Harry's. Use the coupon code GLOP, G-L-O-P, at checkout to get $5 off your first purchase with the coupon code Glop. We'll talk more about this later in the show, but for now, we are, of course, John Podhorich, Jonah Goldberg, and Rob Long presenting Glop Culture, the podcast mm-hmm. that does yeah. almost no good for the world, but <laughs> provides us with an hour to talk and make nonsense well, and make how, jokes.
2: How come you can do a, <clears throat> a pretty good radio voice? Announcer doing the commercial, but then when you actually do the program, you're like, yeah. And then this crappy little podcast is coming on. <laughs> you know, uh, Harry Shave, Harry Shave gives you Harry you know, friends. Harry
0: Shave gives you the greatest shave you could ever have. Harry Shave, this glob culture is a podcast. Now
2: this this thing is uh, like know, a great a hooker
1: at the bar who doesn't yeah. deliver in the hotel room. Right. Exactly.
2: Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, actually, you know, that's not the first the
0: time that I've ever been compared to a great hooker. <laughs> <laughs> at a bar <laughs> and certainly yeah, exactly. at a bar now i am john pod with me of course rob long hi rob john how are you and of course jonah goldberg in washington somewhere i am in washington somewhere uh jonah has a clip on uh has a has a lavalier mic clip to his to his lapel uh that is apparently pulling his laptop around smashing it into other things on his desk. Can you not hear me? I can hear you fine. I'm just saying I heard you say before the show that you had an incredibly heavy mic hanging from your shirt. No. I'm concerned about your shirt.
2: That's a metaphor.
0: It's clipped to the the side of the screen
1: of my MacBook Air and it weighs about as much as my MacBook Air. And Ah. so like, constantly wants to flip over.
0: That's not good. No. Because MacBook Airs, as we know, now weigh – 40, you know, weigh about eight ounces. Yeah. Yeah. Something I mean, like, like eight ounces. Uh, like one it, of my kids dropped a MacBook Air. <laughs> it practically shattered on the floor. I mean, it sort of bent backwards. It was really a great loss of thousands of dollars worth of computing. So,
1: in its weight in marijuana, um, it's worth more than the marijuana.
0: Well, uh, now that we've dispensed with the, you know, with the pleasantries that really make Glob Culture the finest podcast in the United States, and perhaps in the Western world, uh, we, uh, you know, all of us uh, social critics and uh, cultural commentators um, can basically take up the uh, important task uh, of looking at the. Retraction by Rolling Stone of its article about uh, a gang rape at a fraternity at the University of Virginia. Scratch our heads, scratch our chins, and go yeah, 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 yeah. Because do we, do we have to? For how, no, <laughs> I did it. Do we have to make that noise? I um, did it. So you no, don't. You did, have because, to. you did it because you um, did it because because why? Because they were wrong. Because. This article came out. The right. entire world said, oh, my goodness. Well, not the whole this world. This is there, a stunning – There are, there are, no, no, there are parts of the world point. where, where
2: what, it, what the article is about are, are actually encouraged. Right. Yeah, that's right. like a normal day in Karachi.
0: <laughs> that's right. 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 But I'm saying the, the world's the – Kid's a stunning! Party. What a stunning piece of reporting. <laughs> this is a staggering indictment of, of right. the rape culture on college campuses, the rape culture, where one Wait, in five okay. so, of rape so, so and so rape the piece, culture, right. and this is stunning, and right. what a heroic thing this pseudonymous woman Jackie did by coming forward, and what an amazing piece of reporting right. Sabrina okay. Erdely did, and three people on the planet said, you know, this sounds a little fishy to me, about like two or three, this is before even the mainstream media started objecting, and what happened, the wrath of the world descended upon them. You are mansplaining. You are, you are degrading the uh-huh. problem. You are mansplaining. You are – this is evil that you should possibly question a story but, of such but, breadth okay, and depth. OK. All right. Just to cut to the chase. So then the thing came that's out yesterday
2: and Rolling Stone said, yeah, it wasn't true and then that's it. I mean, I understand the impulse to go, yeah, 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 but nobody's getting fired. Nobody's being punished. They just said, yeah, are bad. Um, anyways... And okay, then yesterday but- – all I read yesterday was people saying, but don't let this false story that was entirely made up by a psychotic person and then delivered to a credulous reporter, don't let that make you think this this didn't happen or couldn't happen or isn't happening right now.
0: I mean but, you know- to me, it's just
2: like they win. Yeah, yeah, yeah to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah to you, John Podoritz, because you think this is a victory. What do you like but them it- apples, Jonah? It is, it is a victory and as
1: one of the few people who wrote before the story – was retracted that it was fake. Um, I wrote about it for the L.A. Times. Actually, as we're recording this, it's up on the L.A. Times site, winning me even more friends over there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I thought the story was BS from the moment I read it, and um, when I wrote the story, it was unbelievable. I got attacked from all these people saying it was, as John said, that I'm the worst person in the world. And but the reason why I think it's news is, you know, you, when you say that no one's being fired. Um, and no one's being punished. That makes it more newsworthy, not less newsworthy, right? That that you should that should be brought to people's attention even more so because it really should, You know, it's so funny to listen to Will Dana, the managing editor of Rolling Stone, or to Jan Brenner, uh, Jan Wenner, say how they um, they they're not firing anybody because they don't want this story to uh, be the sum total of their reputation. And they don't see the, the, the disconnect there, which is that right. that not firing these people is what makes it part of your reputation. It's like, that's how you own this mistake. And I read the entire report and um, to me, this is almost exactly like the Dan Rather memo gate story where, as we all recall, Dan Rather climbed up the jackass tree and then fell down hitting every branch on the way um, where – It was purely an example of groupthink, hysteria and an ideological agenda um, making people drop all of their normal skepticism and all all the normal rules because it was too good to be true and too important a noble lie to check. And the fact that this is going on is worth
0: telling people. You talk about people's ordinary skepticism or common skepticism and I would submit to you that once something becomes… A, uh, a hot, ideologically charged topic that skepticism is not only suspended in most cases, but it is understood by everybody around on all sides of the debate that it is dangerous to your reputation, to your sanity and to like the good working order of your day to even whisper a breath. Of Even say, hey, I, I want to, yeah, OK.
2: You know, yeah, I, but don't, I don't know. There's something a piece about this that doesn't change. add up.
0: Yeah, but it's like why didn't she go to the cops? I mean basically the first thing you say in a story like this is – A so lot of she women was don't go to the cops. She, was, she was gang raped at a fraternity. Why didn't she go to the cops? OK, well, she didn't go to the cops. But so she went to a counselor on campus who also didn't go to the cops and then allowed the fraternity to remain open for two years raping other people. I mean none of it added up. And the idea is that you could say, well, I mean, Rolling Stone published it. So they must know that it's true. But, of course, that is where things also fall apart media-wise. One of the things that people are learning about the media in 2012, 13, 14, 15 is that the standards uh, is that, you know, like when I came up and I worked at, you know, lavishly funded Time magazine and things like that. There was a battery of lawyers. They went through everything because that was what life was like then and everybody had enough money to have a legal department. Rolling Stone apparently had a lawyer. The lawyer left somewhere at some point in the course of this story. Um, fact-checking is a thing of the past. There's very little of it done. People are now discovering, for example, that you know when you read a nonfiction book – when I was a fact-checker in 1982 – the idea was you could trust a book, particularly a book published by an academic press, as a hard factual check, a black check, as we said at Time Magazine, a red check at Time Magazine, as opposed to a black check, which was something that needed two or three different sources. And we're now discovering there's very little fact checking in publishing. There's very little fact checking in day to day publishing. Yeah. Well, there's certainly no typo finding in publishing. And this notion that you can be assured that a a, a famous um, publication is doing due diligence on the work that it is publishing is something no one can take for granted anymore. No one. Yeah. Jack Schaefer well, had a – Jack Schaefer had also had a piece in which he said, look, you know, everybody ought to be careful because so many places have had you know, a con artist – or somebody bad, do you know, J- Jason Blair and uh, Stephen, Stephen Glass and Shaleed and Janet Cook, and you know, almost every major news organization or you know, serious publication has had some problem with this over time. So don't you be careful about you know, pointing fingers because it, it could happen to you. Yeah, but that that but is I,
1: true. That I, I made this point in my LA Times column. Uh, that's not what happened here. Right? The, I read the entire Columbia report and there is no allegation that anybody except for Jackie lied or purposefully misrepresented the truth. What happened was it's not just – I mean you're absolutely right, John, about people losing their skepticism when they get caught up in the sort of ideological St. Vitus's dance of the moment and we see this on a grand scale with things like global warming and other sort of groupthink problems. But this was a situation where it wasn't just their skepticism. It was the mechanisms and procedures that were in place. At time and time again, the rules said we got to get a second source on this. The rule said we got to get the accused uh, a chance to comment. The rules said we got to confirm the date and the identity of these people. And in each and every step, Jan Wenner and, and, and Will Dana and, and Sabrina Erdely all decided at one point or another to go another way. They all decided to drop the rules that they had in place, and so this is—it's it's, it's, that's why I think it's much more like the the, the Dan Rather stuff because this was a, this was just something they wanted to be true for ideological and political reasons so badly that they thought it was worth dropping the normal rules. And it, it does get to this other issue, which no one really wants to talk about, which is what is it about college campuses today? That is sets up an environment where so many young people feel compelled to lie about their oppression, right? I mean, it's not just this Jackie right, Gray right, right. who lied and lied and lied for months on end to a reporter and was fine with her story being written so long as no one fact-checked it, um, which is a kind of dementia in a lot of ways. Um, but, she, but also on college campuses after college campuses, racial hoaxes happen all the time in administrations – shut them down because they don't like the bad publicity. And, you know, my favorite one was the guy. I mean, it's a state of hysteria. It's very much like Salem. There's the one It was in Oberlin where someone came out in a white right. blanket on a cold mm-hmm. day. And the first instinct was, oh, my God, the Klan is here. The Klan <laughs> is in Oberlin. Yeah,
2: they're in <laughs> Oberlin. There's, yeah, they're, know, the they're the taking clambers, they put on the robes
1: and they head to Oberlin. And they had yeah. days of meetings and panic about this. And they, they wanted to see whether, you know, where accused racist children would float in the in the horse trough or not. I mean it was just like a total witch trial mentality there. And this is going on on campuses so, uh, and why is that? Rolling Stone suspended the rules right. because they believe this girl so much.
0: Okay, can I give you my theory about college campuses? Mm-hmm. And it, I think, you know, we can talk about the professoriate and we can talk about student activist groups and all of this, but there is a third force on college campuses and it is this um, bureaucracy of counseling yeah so in in field after field in gender in race in you know in uh, sexuality, um, there is now this bureaucracy that has come up to help counsel kids with their problems on college campuses, and one of the problems is it 's a classic thing in economics, right if you subsidize something, you get more of it, so if you have. Counseling bureaucracies. One of the things that a counselor in you know problems involving gender is going to find is more problems involving gender, uh, more discrimination, more hostility, more pro- you know. Same with race. Same with LGBT. Same with all of this. And when you create a permanent bureaucracy, permanently employed bureaucracy that is in part enriched by these things happening because of course then maybe you can hire more counselors and you can get you, you you are you are more central to the university's mission and your center gets more money and you get raises and all of that And you believe in it. I'm not saying, by the way, that the counselors don't believe that there is an epidemic of rape on college campuses and that if you're black, your life is a misery at all college campuses and if you're gay, terrible things are going to happen to you because somebody looks at you cross-eyed when you walk across the campus. They believe all this. But it is also in their innate interest and it is also in the interest of the campus itself to be able to say, hey, you know what? Your kids are set. Look, if anything's wrong, they can go to the counseling center. But isn't it also this weird
2: thing where I'm, um, I mean, these are most, I mean, now I'm now going to say something completely incendiary, right? Or, or, or without a shred of proof or backup at all. But it seems to me that these are all white kids running around saying we've been raped and I've been microaggression and all that stuff. It's like they have envy. Uh, they they get to college and they uh, after twenty years of thirty years of, of very you know complicated ethnic and racial diversity training on college campuses now the white kids want in so everyone's got to be a victim everyone's got to go everyone arrives in college as this horribly wounded vulnerable bird and college is supposed to be the place where you're sort of massaged and and you're you're padded and have these these uh, the, this 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 institution of therapy around you to try to to try to make it okay about the trauma that you've suffered. To get there to get to over. But Oberlin. it doesn't
0: have to be everybody. That's partially, I think, Jonah's point is it can be two people, it can be three people at a campus of four thousand or twenty-five thousand or fifty thousand so, who can turn the place upside down. But yeah, oh, they can turn but, some, but Somebody paints a swastika on his own door, right? Somebody paints a swastika on his own door, and the entire place revolves around this fact for a week it is very empowering of dangerously deluded or you know or or you know fallacious it's, it's, behavior
1: yeah there's a there's a, we're in a weird Nietzschean transition moment where victimhood is the way you assert your will to power yes
2: exactly right, right.
1: but um you know what this reminds me of because there is something definitely going on in sort of the general left you know we've talked about this before you know All of a sudden Jonathan Chade is very upset that people are attacking him for being a straight white male while he was perfectly happy to use that technique against his political opponents to his right. He just thinks it's a problem when the left starts to eat its own. But my favorite sort of example of this in terms of the empowering nature of victimhood and identity politics was – do you guys remember a couple of years ago? I guess it was about four years ago now. There was the blogger gay girl in Damascus who was a Middle East blogger.  … … who was claiming to be a gay girl living in Damascus and things were so much better for her um, <laughs> because as a gay girl in Damascus than they would be for her in the Palestinian territories or in Israel and that the West is terrible and you stupid white male, you know, heteronormative people living in the West. You really don't understand things and it turned out that it was a – like it was a middle-aged white guy <laughs> lying about being a gay girl in Damascus. And he was exposed by another middle-aged white guy who got to know this guy through the chat sessions who had been pretending to be a lesbian blogger as well. And (laughs) it was so fascinating because it turns out that if you – you can't have good – and this guy apparently knew a lot about the Middle East and obviously he was a crazy left-winger and all that kind of BS. But – He couldn't make – stand by the authority of his own arguments and his own observations. He had to lie and claim that he was a lesbian living in Damascus because otherwise he wouldn't get attention and respect from the people on the left. That That was a dysfunctional, messed up culture they got.
2: That was his credibility. His credibility was my my, my personality traits. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, This is unrelated of course but I'll just just say it anyway. Uh, uh, Two weeks ago, this guy uh, – Figured out a way to hack the the app Tinder. So he put up a, um, a, a a profile of an attractive young girl, and on Tinder, when you match with someone, you can then start chatting with them. So he got on Tinder, pretending to be this girl. And he figured out a hack so that when he was matched with a guy and also matched with another guy and two guys were trying to chat with him, he could connect them so they were chatting with each other, and he would just watch the chat unfold <laughs> so I'm serious it's great so these two guys are both feel like they're chatting with this girl, this attractive girl right who's Maybe even you know, uh, un- in an unlikely fashion, match with them, and <clears throat> they really get along <clears throat> because, of course, each guy feels like he's found the perfect woman. You know, she she says sup. You know, she she sounds like a, a guy, but she's not. And then about two thirds through the chat, one of them would say, "You use it as like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of a family. You know, fam. I like families. So I want kids. You know, I can think I'd be a good dad." And then the other would say, "Yeah, me too." Wait, what? <laughs> it's fascinating to see how far you can go online being whoever you want to be and how much credibility you have just saying you're just putting up a picture and saying this is who I am.
1: See, what's funny about that, I to, my buddies and I, who we were pretty reprobate type people in high school. We used to joke all the time about how the last thing in the world we wanted was to find a woman who was really just like us because <laughs> we were disgusting. And we wasted enormous amounts of time on stupid things. And the idea of finding a woman who like wants to get you know who, who you know wants to have beer drinking or or cheese eating contests or whatever the things that we did were um, would be horrifying, you know. But uh, I guess it kind of
2: changes as you get older. Yeah, you know, but you still don't want to marry anybody who's like, hey, let's go watch the Warriors
0: nine times and pick okay, out but the here,
2: geographical mistake exactly.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. But here, here we are here we are so like 40 years ago 50 years ago people's idea of a prank was to call up you know a tobacconist and say do you have prince Prince Albert McCann, why, why don't you let him out? And now you have people hacking Tinder to force two people to think that they're having a conversation with the with the woman of yeah, their of their dreams. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the other thing about uh, that's the other thing about the computer call is that it is that it has taken things that were sort of glancing, you know, bits of um, of uh, of behavior and sort of. Made made it possible for people to do them 20 hours a day assuming that they're on social security disability you know, and can afford to do
2: so. If I could just interrupt for one minute and say if you are listening to this podcast, it is a production of ricochet.com. We have a lot of listeners uh, of uh, the Glob podcast, all of our podcasts. We don't have that many members of Ricochet. Um, That's a – an inverted relationship we, we, we would like to change. Please go to ricochet.com. Check us out. Sign us up. Sign up for The Daily Shot. It's our uh, daily email news blast. Gives you all the news and the tidbits of information you need that day to wallop any liberal progressive person in your um, conversational pit. You can join. For, get a free month of Ricochet. Use the coupon code, coupon code JOIN. Get a free month. If you like it, stick around. If you don't, you can write nasty emails to us and tell us to buzz off. But please do go to ricochet.com and join. We are pleased to have you listening. We would love to have you as members. One question, Rob? Yes, sir. What, what dystopian vision do you have when you
1: use the phrase, your conversational pit?
2: Exactly what it sounds like. I I envision a kind of a dirt hole, and that we're in it. And then we sometimes we find ourselves in that dirt hole when we're having a political conversation with one or more people who um, are totally on the other side.
0: As the oldest, you can't get out of this podcast. As the oldest person on this podcast, I would like to point out that you you two spring chickens. Pishers are too young Pishers. Pishers, are too young to remember that what rob is actually referring to was a an element of in, of interior design yeah of course in common spaces known as the conversation pit where a student lounge or a common area in some building would be constructed with levels uh almost like um you know, a stage set has sometimes has, Is it where has young, levels young and would race rap? and yeah, they we, would sit rap. and then at the bottom of all these levels was a circle in which you could sit cross-legged on the floor. Indian and, style. And rap or and, you know, have a really, you know, really talk. And that was called the conversation pit. And the fact that nobody knows what this is anymore is testimony to the wonderful success of the conversation pit in encouraging conversation. Because the last time I remember being in a conversation pit, I was an apprentice at the Williamstown Theater Festival in 1978. And after uh, the shows were over at 11 o'clock at night – uh, everybody would retire to a building on the Williams campus where there was one of these lounges with a conversation pit and proceed to have an orgy in the conversation <laughs> pit. Wow, so and so when it's an I orgy say pit. proceed to have an orgy, I literally mean they proceeded to have an actual orgy. Now, which, okay. Uh, I, as a 17-year-old, and I will now say as an almost 54-year-old foolishly, did not participate in.
2: That is the saddest story I have ever heard in my entire life. I have an image of you. I have an image of you looking in at that pit on the outside from a window, a steamy window with your enormous tear. head of curly hair. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> a tear rolling down your cheek, and then thinking, of, I'm, "I'm no uh, f- counting down." Okay, when I get to ten, I'm going in one. Okay, when I get to thirty, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go in at thirty. I'm gonna. If anyone looks at me and sees me, I'm gonna go right in. If anyone, and then it just didn't happen.
0: Okay, now listen. <laughs> <laughs> I was seventeen years old. I was uh-huh. seventeen years old, and this was a very, very <laughs> traumatic experience in my life. So, if uh-huh. you want to make fun. Go ahead and make it's fun. That, it's not that I want to. I have to. You yeah. know, if this were today, I would have a counselor I could go to at the Williamstown Theater Festival to claim that I've been microaggressed against. As I say, I did not. In fact, I participate in the orgy, though. And and I question, uh, you know, though I think I morally and probably in terms of my, my, my future health. Uh, benefited from the fact that I did not participate uh, in, in said orgy. Nonetheless, I will say that, you know, I would love to be able to be at a party and say, yeah, you know, once in the 70s when I was oh, at, yeah, yeah. at this orgy, right. I was at this orgy, you know. So, and oh my, yeah, ooh, yeah. boy, it was a crazy
2: stuff. I, wait, that I, I back then excuse, in the me, excuse me, it's a question on the table, Jonah. Yeah, how,
1: how many more years was it? that you finally did participate in an orgy and please give us some details.
0: Well, I, I, I will say that the uh, only uh, – I have participated in what I would uh, describe as uh, spiritual orgies, uh, not actual <laughs> sexual orgies as when – That you really were, wasn't
2: the question but go ahead. Okay. Well,
0: <laughs> No metaphors, please. Yeah. The weirdest sort of group – Madness experience that I can think of that I've actually s- sort of been in the midst of three or four times is when at a political convention, nominating convention, presidential convention, you know, the candidate gives a speech and you're standing on the floor. And and in my experience, this is as close to the feeling of being at, you know, some horrifying fascist rally. It doesn't matter. Both parties have been through it. You know, that this group think everyone is focused on this one person. There is a kind of ecstasy in the air. Nothing that he could do or say would not make this crowd feel the most glorious sense of wonder and fulfillment. The
2: closest thing you've ever, ever experienced to a (laughs) real actual sexual orgy is (laughs) <laughs> Reagan's inaugural speech in 1980? No,
0: no, I will even tell you Walter Mondale's convention speech in 1984. Oh, John. I, this is... This is like the ice I'm, storm. I'm, we need to get out.
1: I'm yeah. telling
0: you. Okay, yeah. Okay, so... Where Rob, are my car
1: keys? Tell us about
0: your orgies, Rob. Well, you and know, Jeff, I'm hot. What about you? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all ears, gentlemen. <laughs> Goucher, look when when Jonah was at an orgy in college, he was one guy with eighty two women from Goucher College. So that might have been interesting. Um, I will not talk about my college years, but um, I will
1: say because I know this will spark some interesting cultural nostalgia for someone here, other than me. When I was a a lad, I would say twelve or thirteen. That's a guess. I had some friends who were slightly older who were um let's just say you know that in a t- rite of passage teenage movie they'd be sort of the townies. They were right. you know uh on the rougher side of things, um uh, kids from the neighborhood. And one day we were walking around the neighborhood, they were a little older, and they were obsessed with Plato's retreat. Oh right which was a sex club on the upper west side of Manhattan. Um, and, uh, which some people might know from that son of Sam movie that came out a few years ago. And, um, and it was advertised every now and then at the early days of public access porn channels on New York city cable. And this guy, the sort of leader of this motley pack I was with convinced the bouncer at Plato's retreat to let us come in. What? Violating all sorts of laws because I'm like a 12 or 13 year old kid. Let us come in and check it out. And to this day, I I have just these episodic images of things that I saw in there. Wow, kind of kind of traumatized me. Good God! Um, and um, and I remember there being a lot of like red velvet and curtains, and um, and a lot of strange people smiling at me in ways that. Are kind of smiles you normally reserve for people who want you to get in their van because they have candy. And um it was strange. And that's about us all well, at the closest I've ever been to even the milieu of
0: an actual orgy. Holy mo well, I mean, wow. that that was an actual orgy. I mean, Plato's yeah. Retreat was yeah. a, there's a there's a very good, though it's very dirty, documentary called American Swing about Plato's Retreat, which was a and I, maybe if you go on YouTube, you can see one of those commercials that was on public access. Oh, that's Plato's Retreat. I didn't know we were going this way, but Players Retreat was a was, was a of one of those that was one of those institutions that uh, you know predated uh, the AIDS era and arguably helped lead to the AIDS era. Though in this case, it was a it was a heterosexual sex club right. modeled on gay sex clubs. Um, you were only supposed to go in if you were a couple and um and it was run by this sort of like former waterbed salesman from Long Island named Larry Levinson, who had this thick New York accent and he would do the commercials like, I'm Larry Levinson, come to Playoffs Retreat where you're gonna have a really exciting experience, you know, like that. And there was food, there was a there was a pool, you know. God you, knows how filthy have, and disgusting it must have been. You have been. detailed knowledge. Only from the documentary. Uh, okay.
2: Um, you're, I, was, was, I was imagining but, you standing outside there again. Uh, yes. No, I, yeah.
0: Ten seconds, I'm going
2: in. I'm going to go in. No, I mean the <laughs> amazing The amazing <laughs> thing about Players okay, Retreat 20, is that it was 30 seconds, I'm going in. Yeah, Here we yeah. go. Okay, ten more seconds. Yeah.
0: I mean Players um, Retreat was was in one of the most beautiful buildings in America – Yes, uh, the, the Ansonia the Ansonia Hotel yeah. which had you know fallen on somewhat hard times but is now you know I mean now the apartments there sell for 10 12 14 million dollars and it is you know the fact that it that was a mark of how far New York and the morality of the United States and everything had fallen in the 1970s people are very much inclined to think that you know things in the United States now particularly certain kinds of social conservatives have reached some kind of a terrible moment no, with better. porn at home and all of this. But I mean, the fact that Plato's retreat even existed and was advertised and people thought, Oh, it's so funny. Blah, blah, blah is itself. But that is, you know, that is, of, yeah, but that's interesting. It's such a reason. slander to Plato too. Yeah.
2: Right.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, it should have been Alcibiades retreat. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. <laughs> you know, you know. The, the, um, the, uh, for you this University thing- of Chicago graduates there, <laughs> a little, little, little symposium yeah. reference hey, is, this, is, this is this on? Is
2: this on? Is this on?
0: I know you're out there. I can hear you breathing. You know that the Warriors, an audience the, an oil the, Warriors was based on Xenophon's anabasis. Yes, uh, that's just right. For yeah. A little a little more Greek, uh, ancient record. Greek f- uh, philosoph- philosophical what, what, historical What brings us up
2: is like. If you watch the Warriors, I watched a little bit of on YouTube last night, or you watch any sort of uh, you know city uh, movie set in 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 a city in the seventies, uh, especially New York movies. But a whole that whole genre of uh, Clint Eastwood movies, you know the the um, Dirty San Harry movies set in San, San Francisco, yeah. and you really get a sense um, of the city as this dangerous place where psychopaths are, and uh, it's all falling apart, and basically. Everyone in the city has given up. It's supposed to fall apart. It's going to fall apart. We're at the beginning of the end. It never occurs to you that, for instance, around the corner from where I live or close to where I live, where you and I had dinner uh, two weeks ago, John, with my friend uh, um, Tim Seidel, there's a restaurant on Avenue B, Fifth Street and Avenue B that not that long ago would have been – uh, impossible to get at night. We would never have gone and half the buildings would have been torn down and opened fires on the street. Um, well, the idea that the, the Clint Eastwood movies, there was uh, – and, and this was true. This was not even t- ter- terribly paranoid that San Francisco was filled with crazy people who were left over from the summer of love and had been there for a few years and are now insane and are murderers and our, are and our, our, and our actual serial killers and that is the even – wasn't even too much of a distortion of the truth. Right. Yeah, the Charles Manson hippies were real. Um,
1: I have a great story about this. I know I've told John this and I can't remember if I've actually used it on on Glock before. But uh, one of my oldest friends, uh, this guy Vin Canato, who's a professor of history at uh, University of Massachusetts, he wrote uh, the definitive biography, political biography of John Lindsay. Um, and it was the argument who was the mayor of New York – And his argument was that that was sort of the, he was the, it was the high water moment of urban liberalism and, but that Lindsay was really a failed mayor and set the stage for the failures of New York. And as John probably knows, well, there's a whole mafia of former Lindsay aides and fans who are very protective of Lindsay's memory. And wherever Vin would go to talk about his book in New York, you know, he'd go to the Barnes and Noble and 82nd and Broadway or whatever, all of these old, Um, fans of Lindsay's would almost shout him down and get really angry at him for saying anything disparaging and the one thing they would always bring up that Lindsay did and it's true is he brought Hollywood back to New York apparently there there's been this long hiatus where Hollywood movies stopped being filmed on location in New York and he set up one of the one of the first film departments that brought movies back and 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 he said, look how great that is for New York. And Vin would always say in response, OK, well, hold on a second. Look at the movies that were brought in by Lindsay's uh, operation. Death Wish, Panic in Needle Park, The French Connection, The Taking of Pelham 1, <laughs> 2, 3, right? It's all in these movies that portray New York as this utterly horrible,
0: terrifying, dystopian right. place right. to live, you know? Well, you know, the, the the last thing I'll say on this is that I was in Chicago over the weekend and I lived in Chicago, went to college there from 78 to 82. And when I look at the city now and I look at New York City now and I look at almost every city that you go to now, what's so striking about the difference between the mid to late 70s and today is that... People accepted, or city politicians, everybody accepted a level of kind of seediness yeah, that right. nobody would allow now. Garbage places, sidewalks were dirty. You know, stuff was in the gutters. The parks were in disrepair, but, And hey, this, almost everywhere you go now, in any like the downtown sparkle, yeah. the parks are very well kept. There was a kind of general national. Decrepitude that set in in the 1970s that really has been reversed. Now I'm sure in you know in places where you know cities where things are really awful, Detroit, yeah. yeah I mean that is obviously not not the case. But in 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 general, um, the urban landscape was allowed to kind of disintegrate from you know but, the high water mark right. of the 30s down to the 70s. And there has been since really the crime dot probably in the 90s, this kind of general upgrade in the experience of simply walking down a sidewalk.
2: You know, but where- there's another side to that. There's another side to that culturally. Okay, I did Red Eye last week or two, I think last week, two weeks ago. And one of the um, – by the way, I'm doing it again on Wednesday, Wednesday night. I'll be hosting again. Um, uh, there's this there's a story about a guy in North Carolina – who stands in front of his – in a normal neighborhood, but he stands in his front door with his door open and he's naked. And he does that you know for a couple hours every day. And people kind of freak out in the neighborhood. But you can't arrest him because it's his own property. He can do whatever he wants. And I remember thinking about that, like thinking, well, OK, that's – he's obviously a, a, a creep and a pervert, right? But I do remember growing up and just Streaking. having – Sorry? Streaking. Streaking, yeah, but also like – I remember going up and, and and not expecting the city to be or the or this public sphere to be free of those people. Like, remember in the seventies, there was always the flasher. So it was a guy yes. walking around in a raincoat, flashing people, and that yeah. was considered normal. Every every New York comedy had a flasher. <laughs> that was when you were out in every scene, you just show the guy, and he would just open up his his raincoat, and he'd be nude underneath. Yeah, Tim um, Conway. Yeah, and that was sort of normal. I don't. Are there flashers anymore? I mean, what what happened to the flashers? Where are the flashers, John?
0: Hold on. on. There's a great flasher story, and then I'll then I'll get to what we have to do next. But there was this uh, hot raw food restaurant in in New York called Quintessence. So it was a place where you know anything that was cooked was cooked only to 118 degrees Fahrenheit. This is to preserve (laughs) the you know. Natural enzymes and the protein. Shit. So you sat there. If, if you went with your vegan friends or whatever, you'd sit there and you'd have some like disgusting piece of half cooked squash, you know, with some cold sauce on it and everything. And there were three or four of them around the city. And it was, and this was the raw food movement. And, you know, everything was very pure and it was uh, wonderful. And people were sitting around feeling so virtuous about eating there. And uh, the uh, quintessence was uh, shut down suddenly <laughs> when its owner was caught flashing people on the D train. So this guy was a raw foodie and he wanted to show people the results, you know, in uh-huh. fronte delicto of what kind of body you could get if you, if you ate raw food um, and particularly if you were nine years or younger. Uh, in age, <laughs> um, so yeah. uh, right. that was the end of quintessence. And uh and I mean, raw food, Somehow, the raw food movement seems to have been replaced by many other food movements. Uh, it did. It uh, it had its moment. Did you went there? I went there once with a with a with a friend and uh, so, was so tried to. Except for the pedophilia, food.
2: it was great. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you'll. You'll eat raw food, but you will not go into the orgy.
0: Well, I'm an I'm adult. You know, Rob, I was an adult. You know, I made an adult choice to eat, okay. to eat raw food. <laughs> okay. and, uh, right. I just want to point out that I believe people, adults have the right to make foolish choices like eating raw food. Now, right. I, I think it's important for me to mention that Glob culture, as you know, brought to you by Harry Shave. Um, and as listeners of Glop know, I am uh, not only. Speaking the ad for Harry Shave, but I am a I am a, a deep uh, uh, convert, a Balchuva, as we say in Hebrew, to Harry Shave. I'm have I've I've uh, I've I've drunk the Kool Aid. I'm I'm a I'm a real committed Harry Shave guy because it's uh, high quality German-engineered blades, crafted for sharpness and precision. Half the price of big name drugstore brands, and they ship it straight to your door. Started by these two guys, passionate about creating a better shaving experience, and it is a better shaving experience. You know, I, I'm. It's just no, no comparison. I don't know how to how to explain it. It's a pleasure to shave with with Harry's Harry's razors and with the shaving cream. Um, so, how did they do it? You're wondering. Are you wondering? Yeah, I mean, I'm you guys are doing email. So I, uh, but no, I no 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 no. I'm I mean, I'm
2: here.
0: Yeah, because uh, <laughs> Harry's bought a blade factory in Germany, been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for almost a century. And so, by cutting out the middleman, they could offer an amazing shave in a fraction of drugstore brands. They ship the blades to your door. It's only two years old, already disrupting the shaving industry. It's great. Their starter kit is $15, includes the razor, three blades, your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or Foaming Shave Gel. I, myself, am a shave gel fan. Uh, as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the coupon code GLOP. And after using the code, you can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. Shipping free, satisfaction guaranteed. Go to harrys.com. Harry's will give you that $5 off. Type in my code Glop with your first purchase. That's H A R R Y S dot com and enter coupon code G L O P for $5 off. Start shaving smarter today. That's what you have to do. Now, Rob, here's yes. what's the question. Do we care that there's this guy saying all these terrible things about America and the Jews who is now going to become the host of the daily show, Trevor Noah? Do we care? Trevor Noah. Trevor? Um,
2: no, I think that I would care were I Comedy Central because the Jews – the jokes were not funny. Um, it is possible to come up with funny anti-Semitic jokes, right? I mean that is possible. Um, um, these were not funny um, and the jokes about that chicks and all that were incredibly – it's a little unfair because some of them are from 2009, these tweets. They're really early, like four or five years ago. So presumably he's gotten funnier. I would be nervous if we're at Comedy Central because it is easy that that show does, is not an institution. That show does not have a voice of its own. That shows John Stewart, and um, you don't. You, when you get rid of John Stewart, you don't know what you got. You maybe you have the Daily Show with Craig Kilborn again, and so it feels to me like. They hired this guy because they didn't want to get yelled at for hiring another white guy. But um, this guy has not made me laugh yet, and that's scary. I, our comedy stuff, always scary. I don't think he's – I mean, look, there is precisely zero chance that that show is going to p- p- deliver up uh, material anything other than the most anodyne and acceptable liberalism possible. So it's not like that show is going to be the secret hotbed of – of uh, of 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 bigotry. It's just not going to happen. More likely, what's going to happen is this kind of boring, bland choice who has a, a skin color that is a pro, that is uh, attractive to Comedy Central and it, it, the acolytes of the Daily Show will take that chair and be a bland choice, and they're going to hurt. It's going to hurt that show.
1: I have I a slightly see. different take on this, but John, you can go first. No, you like. go first. You go. Okay. So I am. Um, I think that. But I, mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. I don't think he's all that funny. I watched some of his stand-up and some of it was funny and some of it wasn't. But I think the telling thing here is, first of all, the the thing that made Jon Stewart successful is I can't think of a guy, you know, present company included, who has a more granular fluency with pop culture, right? I mean, Jon Stewart can make references that people get, I mean I'm sure John knows more references than Jon Stewart does. But John Stewart is like, really gifted at being able to speak in not just the references but the tones that people get, um, that young people get, that uninformed people get, you know, which is a real trick. And, um, and I think that the, the real key to understanding the Comedy Central decision isn't about Jon Stewart. It's about John Oliver. And where liberalism has now gone is – it has is, it is gone basically to this if, – if you're – you know John Stewart made fun of America and made fun of conservatives and all that kind of stuff. But he did it from a kind of mainstream liberalism and the, the place to go now is to go completely outside the system. John Oliver loves to take dumps on the United States of America from a great height. From this sort of transnational progressive cosmopolitan height where he says, oh, you Americans, you operate in such funny ways. Let me tell you how the the rest of the world sees you and self-hating liberals eat it up and love it. And so here comes this young South African black guy who does all of this observational humor about racism in America. That isn't very funny, but that feeds into this sort of global cosmopolitan sort of criticism of America that feeds into sort of the Barack Obama you know America is exceptional in the sense that everybody thinks they're exceptional kind of way and they think that is the next level of cutting edge biting uh satire and criticism of the United States of America and I think they are completely wrong because it simply is unsustainable the way John Stewart could sustain what he did and he, this guy does not know how to drop references and work with audiences to get them to stay. And the act of just sort of doing yeah. this outsider's critique I'd of America that. doesn't last.
0: Okay. I, here's that. my, I think that's true. I think that's all true. I have, to, I, have, I have two other things to say. I've watched Trevor Noah, like 20, 25 minutes of Trevor Noah. I understand what it is that Comedy Central saw – In this guy, to me, watching him, he looks to me like a movie star. He's incredibly good looking. He's incredibly comfortable in front of a mic. He's a terrific mimic. There's something very likable about him. He's got got real presence. He has star quality. And they're looking at it and going, oh, my God, this guy is a star. Here's number two and number three. There was some talk when he was named of this, oh, this is terrible. Once again, woman passed over for, you know, a late night comedy slot. What about Samantha B? What about this? What about Amy Schumer? What about so-and-so? Comedy Central is a network. 75% of its audience is male and the average age of its audience is 28 years old and a large Segment of Comedy Central's audience, so this is harder to discern in numbers, is black. Trevor Noah is the Comedy Central audience. They have gone with a demographic play. Okay? He is a 30 year old black guy, comedian, good looking, not too sharp, you know, his stuff isn't too harsh and they are rather than going to imitate john stewart they are going with the i'm going to pick a guy that is just like the audience that right. I, that that well, watches people, our channel and yet that is and what everybody all, else yeah. is in their 40s or in their 50s and all of that and you can't duplicate john stewart and there is no other john stewart and a woman wouldn't work because women don't watch comedy central and you know and they know that and they'll never admit that and it has a large black audience and they won't really talk about that in the same way. But – so that's my take. That's – I think you're probably right. But
2: that, but, but that is – that's craziness. That's foolishness. That's exactly what network presidents do. There's zero evidence to suge- – zero actually evidence to suggest that people want to watch themselves or a version of themselves on television. The the, the audience that The Daily Show garners is uh, almost half the age, a little a little more. But you know, John Stewart's in his 50s. So the idea that they have to see a young person is just not true. Um, it, th- th- the problem with that is they have taken the Daily Show franchise and they've decided that it's just an hour where they need to fill time and they're going to fill it with the the you know the Tonight Show. Um, that's a mistake. That's a business error, and they'll they'll regret it.
0: I mean, I you know, I, to, to, I don't care either way. Um, I think they're they they are. This is a very interesting. Cultural year because what what Jonah's is saying is right that you know John Oliver who has migrated who hosted the Daily Show for a couple of months while Jon Stewart made a movie and has now migrated to to HBO to do this you know transnational uh, humor about the United States so uh, he's gone uh, Colbert's gone Stewart's gone right they are it's, it's, it's really a, the, a net, the net you know. Uh, now, now to be fair to them, there they have you know generated three huge comedy stars. Not in late night, but they have generated three huge comedy stars in the last three or four years: Amy Schumer, uh, uh, Jordan Peele, and Keegan Michael Key. Well, Peele yeah, but, and Key do this together. But
2: you forgot? No, that's not. Yeah. That's, okay. that's, and that's Tosh a, and Tosh, Tosh is and Daniel Tosh. Tosh Two Point was their biggest success on that channel is I think it remains what their top show, bigger than The Daily Show in its heyday. It was a huge, huge, huge deal. You know, it's interesting because I've, I've been trying to work out this this, this idea because I've been watching uh, a few episodes of um, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and I'm thinking about Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which was a pilot that Tina Fey did for NBC a year ago and NBC passed on it and now it's on
0: Netflix. And, it's it's uh, bigger than that. They made 10 episodes and passed on it. It was broken. done. Yeah, done. It was done and then NBC did not want to run it. They didn't want to run it.
2: Uh, so uh, – and then, and then I was thinking – because I was reading an article about MSNBC. And about the, tri- the trials of MSNBC. Now, look, I'm very, I actually, you know, this is not news to you guys, full disclosure. I'm in the TV business. I, 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 I have aneurysms. I have, like, veins will pop out of my skull when I talk about network television executives and their decisions and why they make the decisions they make. But I'm reading this thing about MSNBC, and it says, "Oh, you know, it hasn't working. They, this didn't work, and Trevor Noah didn't work, and Chris Hayes didn't. I mean, not Trevor Noah, um, uh, Ronan Farrow, and Chris Hayes, all that stuff didn't work, and they have you know, 60,000 viewers. What are they going to do? The one bright spot is Morning Joe, and so I would like to go into the MSNBC executive offices and and have them all beaten senseless." Because if you're that stupid, if Morning Joe is working in the morning, Morning Joe is two people, a guy and a girl, Joe Scarborough, Mika Brzezinski. They kind of hate each other and they're on this thing in the morning and they're guests and people watch that. Do Morning Joe at night, you morons. Have <laughs> night, Joe. It's not that hard. Just find two people who kind of hate each other, put it on, see how that works. Instead, the executives of MSNBC, out of sheer moronic idiocy, they, no, we've got to find that one star. It's got to be somebody behind the desk. They have a successful show on their network and instead of trying to replicate that, they decided to be smart, to act smart. No, we can, act, we can outsmart ourselves and come up with something, the new person behind the desk. But it's right, so
1: stupid. Isn't part of the reason why um, they're doing that, that yeah, Morning Joe is a success for MSNBC, which is sort of like saying the best Oktoberfest in Orlando. The way they define a real success is they look over at Fox, which has lots of people sitting behind desks. Right, right, right. right. Yeah,
2: that's exactly right except you have to build on the success that you have. True. And the success that you have is you have Morning Joe. So they have Evening Joe. Not Joe. Find somebody else. It's not that hard. That's just casting. But uh, uh, the the other thing I would say about Kimmy Schmidt. So Tina Fey, who's been entertaining NBC audiences for uh, decades, right? Um, she makes a show called Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and she gives it to NBC and they say, um, no, we don't know if we like it. Now, at which point? At what point do the people at NBC, the executives there, think they know better than, than Tina Fey? Like, if, teen, if, if, a, if a piece of talent has done, you know, two decades worth of service, she must know something. Give it a shot. Is, just put it on. You've already paid for it. Put it on. Instead of trying to act smart, and the 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 ability of these executives to to try to be to try to uh, outsmart themselves and be clever is just so staggering to me when the 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 uh, the, the solution is so obvious. Okay, I'm done ranting, but it really makes okay. me. mad.
1: I, I just want to get to that to one point very quickly. We don't have to dwell on it. Um, but when you, you both basically said, in one extent or the other, that you don't really care what happens to the Daily Show and all that, I actually think putting them back on our pundit hats for two seconds, it really does matter. Jon Stewart was an enormous help to Barack Obama. He was an enormous help to the Democrats. I don't think that this Trevor Noah guy has anything like a a tenth of the potential to help Democrats going forward. I agree. Um, And with the loss of Colbert as well, there's a whole sort of message machinery that sets a tone for how the elite media greet certain ideas that has just been gutted. Oh, I agree with you. And Hillary Clinton is going to need that really, really badly because she needs all the help she can get to seem cool because she's a frumpy old lady.
0: (laughs) There's nothing really to add to that. So the only thing that we should probably discuss before uh, wrapping up here is um, the madness – in Indiana over the last um, two or three weeks uh, in relation to its passage of a state-level Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a uh, something that was uh, entirely uncontroversial until all of a sudden it was entirely horrifyingly controversial, you know, an act passed in 1993 Originally to safeguard the rights of um, Native Americans to smoke peyote in, um, you know, in, in religious ceremonies, uh, dealing with essentially to put into law something that the Supreme Court had decided for 20 years. There should be these exceptions to common law for religious practice and then Antonin Scalia writing for the court in 1989 said, no. Um, if there are going to be exceptions to the law, the exceptions should be written into the law by legislators. And so in 1993, the federal government passed the, the RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And then in 1997, a court restricted that act to the federal level. So states that wanted to include these protections for religious practice had to pass them individually. And 19 passed them with no comment. And then the 20th passed it. And the world, the sky opened up as though, as though something monstrous and unprecedented had happened to drive uh, gays, lesbians, and others into you know into a into the Inquisition. I, I don't know that I've ever seen anything like it. Anybody I agree else? with
1: that. I think that was a very good factual exegesis of what happened, except for one correction, which I think is relevant. Um, John, Arizona tried to pass essentially a RIFRA, and they ate Jan, Jan Brewer alive, and she dropped it and vetoed it, and that is the only reason why. Right. I, I I think the left and the mainstream media should be ashamed of themselves. I think this has been one of the most disheartening, disgusting periods in how a story has been handled in a long time. But Mike Pence needs yeah. to stop stepping on every part of his freaking anatomy and shut up. He so blew this. He tried to be really cute. He tried to make this a sop to the anti-gay marriage crowd, which it kind of wasn't, but he tried to spin it to them that it was. He signed it in a closed-door thing with these people. He should have seen what they were doing, what they did to Jan Brewer and be prepared for it with these things some political experts call arguments and he had none. And he went on Stephanopoulos' show and was asked unbelievably predictable, obvious questions, and he completely screwed it up. He created this mess, it was political malpractice, and I, I'm kind of I resent him for creating a mess that everyone else has to clean up. But other than I, that, my blame it ever goes everywhere else.
2: Uh, I, but I agree with Jonah too. I mean, I, I, that, that's what I think was so so disheartening about it was that he could have signed this in a ceremony with a you know one of those Greek Orthodox guys in the fuzzy hat and a rabbi behind him and a priest and a nun and you know an ecumenical a, a, a Buddhist Lama. He could have talked about religion, the free, religious freedom restoration act. Instead, he had the American Family Association there and he had the Family Research Council, and it really did look. If you were an ordinary gay person in Indiana, like holy moly, what's going on here? I mean, the action. I mean, whether the action, the substance of it, 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 it comported or not, it did seem like this bizarre set of circumstances to sign this law when it really the law is pretty, you know,
0: basic, as they say. Well, we have one thing
1: used in one of these gay cases ever, right? Right.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that we can be thankful for is that this at least reduces the potential 2016 presidential field yes. Yes. by one because there has been talk for 2 years that Mike Pence would be a good presidential candidate. He's a Midwestern governor successful state. He's you know, he's uh, he's uh, intelligent and blah blah blah. All these people, all these all these uh, Pence partisans have been talking him up to me. And uh, that guy shouldn't run for federal dog catcher, let alone for uh, president of the United States. Exactly. And he right. will not be, and he will not be doing so. So, um, though as we speak, uh, Rand Paul has uh, declared for uh, the presidency, and next week Marco Rubio will declare for the presidency. I will, I will conclude my peroration on the subject by saying, people should spend a little time. Really, should spend a little time going on YouTube or going on C-SPAN and watching these guys speak. Rubio, in particular, but Walker and and uh, and Rand Paul, whom I don't like, but that, these are uh, these are candidates of a higher order than we are used to in the Republican field. Um, Rubio, in particular, is a dazzling speaker, and I, I use the word dazzling. You know, with some aforethought, um, he may be the best natural speaker, and I'm talking about extemporaneous, not with a script I've practically ever seen. And but can he do a Harry Shave spot? That's my question. I he would do a Harry Shave spot that would have you he know would do Norelco hairy, and Gillette. Such a Harry Shave Gillette, spot. Gillette would 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 plots and and <laughs> would would Schwitz from Marcos. From Marco's Harry Shave Spot. Anyway, these guys are very impressive. Um, uh, And it's an interesting thing to go into a race in which uh, the Republican Party has it over the Democratic Party when it comes to sort of like sheer natural sort of intelligence and performance skills. That hasn't been the case in a long time.
1: I agree with that. I I think Rubio – is the best extemporaneous political talker out of all of them um, I think Newt was more compelling, and Bill Clinton was more effective, but in terms of the current crop, he's the best of his generation
0: and and you know and 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 Ted Cruz is an extraordinarily effective speaker, yeah I mean he yeah. also he also has a quality that Rubio doesn't have Rubio doesn't have, which is that there's a there's an annoying quality. To the way he presents himself. I mean, it's that kind of weird combative, even when he's not being combative, he's being combative. Rubio has drained that from him um, himself. And, you know, and Paul is a Paul is a is an interesting, articulate, slippery guy who steps up to the edge of all sorts of things that he then steps back away from and tries to dog whistle to his father's supporters and others while trying to maintain his viability Clintonian-wise within the Republican system. Very interesting to watch. Um, and, then there is, <clears throat> and then there is Hillary Clinton, who uh, we just heard is going to keynote the Women of the World uh, conference by uh, Tina Brown in oh, uh, May. And thus – you know, What about what uh, she'll say? Um, <clears throat> I think she'll, she'll say that women are very important in this world, oh, yeah. Rob. And uh, and and she will also say that she doesn't want brown M and M's. She wants a chair with a a comfortable chair. Uh, Lukewarm lukewarm water and a two hundred seventy five thousand dollar check.
1: And and truly befitting her persona, she will tell everyone that there's no eating in the library.
0: So, guys, what uh, – so we should mention that our next podcast yes. uh, will actually be a live podcast on April 30th Correct. in Washington, D.C., coming to you live at night from the National Review Institute. What, what is the official name of the conference? Is it the summit? The national, it's, it's the Ideas, it's Ideas summit. summit. Ideas Summit sponsored by the National Review Institute. Um, we did this once before live on the National Review cruise uh, last summer, and uh, that was uh, immense fun or whenever that was. It wasn't, it wasn't summer. Um, and uh, and uh, it was a good time was had by all. And uh, I guess if you want to come and hear us, you should contact the National Review. Go to the National Review website and look for information about the Ideas Summit. Correct. Uh, Correct. Because you can come and there, there is a two-day conference uh, that this is one of the kickoff events for uh, with a very exciting uh, series of uh, discussions with very major – all the thinkers that you've come to know and love from National Review and various other important uh, political types. Um, so uh, that is uh, April thirtieth, and uh, that means, of course, that on April thirtieth, I will have to cancel my regularly scheduled gig uh, opening for Trevor Noah at uh, exactly at the Giggles right. in West Nile. Yeah,
2: easy, easy opener for him.
0: Yeah,
2: um, yeah, it'll be, it sounds like it'll be fun.
0: Uh, Jonah, you have anything you want uh, want the people to uh... Uh, the people?
1: Uh, let's see. Um, this Friday night, um, I am. Flying out to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I am speaking at the YAF Midwest Summit. Um, one of the rare occasions, Steve Hayes and I will be seen in the same room together. Um, and what else? Uh, I guess that's really – I'm looking at my calendar. The rest
0: is all stuff at Plato's Retreat. Um, so that's it. But wait, I forgot to mention that on April 16th, I will be at Hofstra University delivering the Sullivan, the Sutherland lecture uh, on the Obama presidency and the race to succeed him at 11.15 a.m. Uh, if you go – if you Google my name at Hofstra, you will find uh, information. The event is free and open to the public, but reservation is suggested. So that is to Thursday, uh, April 16th. Well, I guess I'm the one without a gig coming up, So, but
2: interestingly, I'm not going to make a six-act play out of it. <laughs> so I'll have a gig, so, I don't know. I guess that's it. I've, I've chosen that, that route.
1: Just, and can uh, we agree that uh, E.J. Hill or whoever is going to do the Photoshopping for this podcast should not, not use an orgy or Plato's Retreat themed image? Can we agree on that? No? Yes, we are agreeing. Thank you very (laughs) much,
0: fellas. Good night. Yes. (laughs) All right. Okay. Anyway, thanks a lot. uh, And we will see you on April 30th. See you soon. All right, fellas. Bye.
1: conversation.